welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the University of New Brunswick. Today, it's my great pleasure to interview Barry Wright about his co-edited book with Susan Binney and Eric Tucker, Canadian State Trials, Volume 5, World War, Cold War, and Challenges to Sovereignty, 1939 to 1990. Published for the Osgoode Society for Canadian Legal History by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. Barry Wright is a professor emeritus of law, criminology, and history at Carleton University. He's done extensive research on political trials, the administration of national security measures in Canadian history, and on the rule of law and criminal law reform in the 19th century British Empire. Over the years, he has co-edited all five volumes in the influential Canadian State Trial series. He has won awards for both teaching and research and is well known to be a generous mentor to his students. I first met Barry in London, England, when we were both doing research at the National Archives at Kew. As a struggling graduate student at the time, I really appreciated his guidance and support. Barry, it's a real thrill to have you join us today to talk about this fascinating book. Thank you, uh, Nicole. It's good to see you, and, uh, and I look forward to our chat. This book is the final installment in a five-volume series about the history of Canadian state trials. Can you tell us something about the origins of the series, explain what a state trial is, and then briefly walk us through the purpose of the series? Yes, well, the uh, late Murray Greenwood came up with the idea of the series. Um, He had studied under Frank Scott at McGill Law School, who inspired his interest in civil liberties. And he was concerned about legal responses to the FLQ, and in particular, the October crisis of 1970, and the first peacetime invocation of the 1914 War Measures Act for apprehended insurrection. As Murray left practice, he and began his PhD on the British colonial regime in Quebec during the French Revolution in the 1790s, he also saw some parallels and came across the Cobbett Howell series of English state trials, which included the 1797 treason trial of David McLean in Montreal. So Murray wondered, why not a modern version focused on experiences with a wider range of political trials and national security measures here? A similar comprehensive study of these sorts of legal responses, but according to modern scholarly conventions. So instead of simple case reports annotated with editorial commentary, as uh, we see with the English State Trial Series, something that would mine the surprisingly rich Canadian record in this area with reflective interpretive essays by specialist scholars that also place the proceedings in context. So the 1885 uh, treason trial of Louis Riel was well known, of course. The Acadian expulsion, the treason trials coming out of the War of 1812 and 1837-38 rebellions, the Fenian invasion trials, Winnipeg general strike trials, somewhat less uh, well known. Digging deeper, it seemed that there were more obscure, forgotten political trials in Canadian history that were worth uh, re-examining. So a surprisingly rich record of treason and sedition and lesser political offense of sedition, as as well as suspensions of habeas corpus and deportations in response to war, invasion, and insurrection. But we also see 
these laws being deployed to uh, against perceived threats posed by dissent and organized opposition movements, the independent press and movements of resistance. And aren't the more recent experiences with public order policing and the administration of modern national security uh, legislation like the War Measures Act and the Official Secrets Act also relevant and related? So in a nutshell, this is what the series is about, Nicole. It's, uh, to put it succinctly, we're, we're concerned with uses of the law to respond to real and perceived threats to the state. And I should add as a footnote uh, that we use the term state trials in acknowledgement of the genre epitomized by the Cobbett Howells series, although it really doesn't have modern currency. Public criminal prosecutions became the norm during the 19th century. Before this, though, most routine criminal offenses were privately prosecuted. State prosecutions by the Crown were typically for political offenses such as treason and sedition, hence the term state trial. The chapters in Volume 5 address similar themes, but I was struck by the diversity of the topics addressed by the authors. The internment of Japanese Canadians during and after World War II, the Kazanko espionage affair, the FLQ trials, labor protests, the Macdonald Commission into RCMP wrongdoing and Indigenous protests in British Columbia and at Oka in 1990. All of these chapters offer intriguing insights into Canadian history. Is there any particular article that you think would surprise readers? Well, it's, uh, th these are diverse topics, as you say. Uh, Riel was the last um, regular trial for treason in Canadian history, and the last sedition prosecution actually appears in, in this, this volume, 1971 trial of five leaders of the FLQ for seditious conspiracy. And while the offenses of uh, treason and sedition still exist in the Canadian Criminal Code, most of the cases in this, and as well as in our previous volume on the early 20th century, involved resorts to national security measures, such as the War Measures Act and the uh, Official Secrets Act, public order offenses and, pol and political policing, and political trials involving the commission of more routine uh, criminal offenses committed with political aims. So political trials, very, very broadly speaking. But again, our concern here is with legal responses to real or perceived security threats. And these more recent uh, experiences, as diverse as they are, certainly fit within that definition. So the fifth and final volume is, is, is wide ranging. And, um, and uh, so perhaps I could mention our chapter authors in each of the topics. Uh, you've already gone through the the chapter titles, but Jordan Stanger-Ross and Eric Adams examine the treatment of the Japanese Canadians during the Second World War and its immediate aftermath under the War Measures Act. Craig Forsey has a chapter on the First World uh, War Crimes trial uh, done under Canadian authority as opposed to British authority, the trial of Kurt Meyer. Uh, the chapters uh, by Reg Whitaker and Barbara Falk and Tyler Wenzel examine the Guzenko affair, which marked the onset of the Cold War in late 1945, um, Kellogg Royal Commission, the spy trials that followed. Jean-Philippe Warren examines the emergence of the revolutionary, revolutionary movement for separation in Quebec and the FLQ trials from 1963 to 72. And Darren Pacioni focuses on responses to the October crisis, 1970, later that, uh, that year and in 1971. 
Uh, Ian Kyer examines the RCMP dirty tricks in the wake of the October crisis. Uh, the McDonald Commission, which uh, was struck to, to review these operations of the security branch of the RCMP, and its dismantling and replacement with a, security, a Canadian Security Intelligence Service. And chapters by Chris Madsen, Ben Issett, and Mark Walters look at the growing use of injunctions and public order policing and contempt proceedings to support business and settler interests in the face of labor and indigenous resistance, and the failure of this response, of course, at OCA in 1990, when, which led to a military aid to the civil power. But of course, the series, previous volumes of the series include many cases of the classic political political offenses. Um, volume one includes treason trials during the period of the American and French revolutions, the War of 1812, as well as sedition prosecutions in response to the emergence of organized political opposition and an independent press. Volume two is, is focused on the rebellions uh, of 1837-38 in Upper and Lower Canada, and uh, which resulted in execution of of dozens of, for political offenses and the transportation of nearly 150 uh, other political convicts to the Australian penal colonies. Volume three examines the post-rebellion modernization of the colonial state and refinement of public order regulation and policing, the emergence of the Dominion of Canada in 1867 in the midst of the Fenian invasions and of course the Northwest Rebellion of 1885. Real treason trial, but there were other trials for treason coming out of that as well. And volume four opens with the passage and implementation of the War Measures Act in 1914 and the growth of security concerns around organized labor and migration following the Winnipeg General Strike 1919. So it's a broad sweep of history, uh, certainly, and even within this, this, uh, this volume five, we cover quite a lot of ground. But what they all have in common is um, this... Uh, examination of uses of law to respond to real or perceived threats to the security of the state. Now, I've avoided the last part of your question. Is there a chapter in this final volume that might surprise readers? Well, I, I would say that many of the cases uh, examined in our chapters warrant entire books on their own and further scholarship. Of the better known topics where the substantial scholarship already exists, I think all our chapters offer fresh insight into the place of law in these experiences. So I'm not, I don't mean to duck your question, but I'll just throw out a couple of examples of what I think uh, some of your listeners may find particularly interesting. Uh, Reg Whitaker's chapter on responses to the Guzenko affair refers to a recently declassified MI5 document from November 1945. Now, there's a lot of debate amongst specialists about when the Cold War started, the onset of the Cold War, and whether the Venona decrypts, which uh, uh, went through Washington in 1946, uh, is really what alerted Washington and London to the extent of Soviet espionage at the dawn of the atomic age. The document unearthed by Reg, and which appears in our volume uh, appendix, supporting documents, confirms the central place of events in Ottawa from September 1945. London was concerned about Mackenzie King reaching out separately to Marshal Stalin, 
And the document basically recommends a coordinated response from London, Ottawa, and Washington, and secret investigations to be held in Canada, leading to the spy trials, which are uh, examined in the chapter by Falk and Wenzel. So I think that's a very, very fascinating um, um, example of international uh, sort of uh, coordination around security. Uh, it, it deals with the question of when did the Cold War start and so on and so forth. And uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's really a contribution to that debate. An interesting angle, another example, an interesting angle coming out of the FLQ trials uh, 1963 to 72 in Jean-Philippe Warren's chapter and Darren's, uh, Darren Pacioni's chapter on the October crisis and the seditious conspiracy trial of the Montreal Five are the contempt proceedings. And, um, and they figured prominently. And uh, contempt uh, is a re residual common law offense not set out in the criminal code, but part of the trial judge's powers to impose penalties, which range from removal of, uh, of, of, um, of uh, people from a trial to imprisonment. And in the case of FLQ lawyer uh, Robert Lemieux, his eventual suspension from practice. Judges under contempt were in effect judges of their own cause in these cases. A fair number of contempt proceedings were, were around protests against the prohibition in the province of Quebec against women serving as jurors. In the 1970s, the prohibition on female jurors was lifted eventually, and legislative guidelines affected the common law offense of, of contempt. Pierre Trudeau's uh, government announced in 1972 that it was also planning to change the War Measures Act, and this was a legislative priority. But of course, this didn't happen until 1988 when it was renamed the Emergencies Act. So I think those are a couple of examples as a sorts of of interesting insights uh, into, into uh, issues like gender, into uh, issues like the, you know, the origins of the Cold War uh, that our chapters bring out, in addition to sort of rigorously examining the place of law as a response to these particular uh, issues and, and crises. The Canadian Ch State Trials series is a collaborative project involving a network of legal scholars, historians, and interdisciplinary scholars. How does the series reflect the development or mirror the development of the field of Canadian legal history? Well, I met Murray Greenwood at the 1987 uh, National Legal History Conference that Wes Pugh and I organized. And the project got underway the next year, just as the War Measures Act underwent its long delayed major revision that I just referred to uh, and became the Emergencies Act. Interestingly, we've just completed the series as we've experienced the federal government's first resort to the act this past February. And perhaps we can talk a little bit about this uh, towards the end of our, our, our conversation. I think we were fortunate with our timing. The series came about uh, during a time when Canadian legal history became a distinct and vibrant field of study. Before the early 1980s, a small handful of legal scholars were interested in history, but it was mostly a doctrinal focus that they had. And a few historians were interested in law. A distinct field of Canadian legal history that was interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary in scope had yet to emerge. This changed in the 1980s for a number of reasons. Um, the emergence of interdisciplinary legal studies, for one thing, that legal scholarship should engage with other disciplines. 
uh, contextualize and not be constrained by uh, professional training. The Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History was an important catalyst for support and collaboration. And by 1987, as a, a critical mass of Canadian legal historians were, were active, and it had grown to the point where Wes and I were able to organize that conference in Ottawa that I, that I mentioned. So Murray and I assembled contributors, and he and I co-edited the first two volumes of the series uh, in the 1990s. And after Murray died, Susan Binney and Eric Tucker joined me as co-editors. Uh, what I really want to emphasize here is that the series wouldn't have been possible without the contribution of well over 50 scholars, mostly historians and legal scholars, who brought their expertise and dedication to this project. They generously shared their scholarship, but also helped refine our broader themes and shape the volume, um, volumes uh, beyond their individual contributions. This sort of collaboration, I think, has been an important feature of what can be described as the new legal history. The volume benefits greatly from a comprehensive introduction and epilogue, and that really situates the various chapters into the themes mentioned in the series. But in the epilogue, you mentioned that the history of Canadian political trials demonstrates English historian E.P. Thompson's arguments about the importance of the rule of law as a check on arbitrary authority. Can you explain Thompson's insights in the context of this series? Well, in the final chapter of Volume 5, originally uh, it was going to be part of our, our uh, volume introduction, and it got so large that uh, Eric and Susan encouraged me to write a separate epilogue. In this final chapter of the volume, I've aimed to place the themes and issues raised by this book within the larger canvas of our previous volumes, providing a retrospective look at the entire series and in our appendix, in addition to the primary illustrative documents like that MI5, recently re declassified MI5 document I referred to earlier, we list all the chapters and authors in the previous four volumes. So if your listeners just get this volume, they'll have a snapshot of the entire series. I'm not discouraging people from buying pre the previous volumes, but you, you get a glimpse of what's there in the previous volumes in my epilogue. Turning to uh, E.P. Thompson... Uh, his work has certainly influenced my own analysis. We see complexities in these legal responses to real and perceived security threats. And what I mean by that is that the law is not simply politics or state power by another means. Resort to the law is not the same thing as direct state violence through military force under martial law, for instance. A legal response is constrained by formal constitutional claims around the rule of law and due process. And I think Thompson's insights helped to unpack this and why this is the case. Resorting to the law lends legitimacy to the state's response to a far greater degree than the arbitrary exercise of power like a military response. But in order to maintain this advantage of legitimacy, attention has to be paid to popular expectations of the rule of law. And indeed, claims about due process and related rights means that effective defenses are possible. The state may be checked, particularly when it comes to perceived security threats. We have many examples of successful, what could be called counter-hegemonic courtroom struggles that, in effect, discredit governments and engender public support to the opponents of government. So... The, the, the law is a complicated area 
it has great benefits uh, for the state in terms of, of, of a response to real or perceived security threats, but it comes with big risks as well. So my first point is to highlight the complexity of the relationship between law and politics as demonstrated through the series. And as they say, for me at least, Thompson is a way of making sense of that complexity. I do want to make a second point about Thompson that perhaps we can return to at the end. An understanding of historical experiences is important as we think about law reform and improving public policies in this area going forward. Thompson was an activist as well as a historian. He was a leading thinker on the British left who challenged Marxist theoretical rigidities that tended to dominate in the left, uh, dominate the left. And with Bertrand Russell, he was a leading figure in the campaign for nuclear disarmament. So he was an activist as well as a historian. And we may look to historical parallels. And I, I do think that current debates should at least be informed by some sense of what our historical experiences in this area have been. But at the same time, I'd like to emphasize that, par that the parallels Parallels are inexact, of course. We need to be cautious around claims of lessons of history to avoid what some historians call presentism. And perhaps we can return to this towards the end of our chat uh, when we look at the government's first use of the Emergencies Act this past February. A major theme of the book is the tendency of judges to defer to government during emergency and security crises in a way that threatens judicial independence. Could you discuss this theme generally? and then provide us with a couple of examples. Well, of course. Um, complexities, of course, include contradictions. And the historical pattern of judicial deference to the executive and to government security priorities during crises is a recurring theme in the series, notwithstanding the complexity of legal responses that I've just described and the constraint of formal constitutional claims around the rule of law. Here and in previous volumes, we examine how in the, here in this volume, and as well as volume four, we examine how legal challenges to the War Measures Act after both world wars and the October crisis consistently failed because judges deferred entirely to government security justifications what, without considering for a moment what those justifications were, nor were they uh, particularly concerned about uh, competing rights claims. The Supreme Court of Canada and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in 1923, for instance, upheld a broad view of the federal government's powers in the, er in the area of national security under its jurisdiction over peace, order, and good government, uh, ahead under the British North America Act or Constitution Act 1867, which uh, had otherwise been construed very narrowly uh, by the appellate courts. This was reinforced in 1947 as examined in the chapter by uh, Adams and Stanger Ross when uh, 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 the, uh, the Japanese Canadians uh, 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 case which went to, to the JCPC, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, and where Lord Wright declared that judges have no business second-guessing government security priorities even once war has ended. So he even extended the 1923 precedents in 1947. In 1971, a new challenge was unable to utilize the uh, 1960 Bill of Rights and didn't get past the Quebec Court of Appeal. So that's an example, I think, 
a pretty clear example of, of judicial deference. Another example, uh, I'll refer again to the recently dis, uh, declassified, uh, to the Guzenko affair and that recently declassified MI5 document that, uh, that uh, Reg Whitaker uh, ha, ha, relies on. It not only recommended a coordinated response from London, Ottawa, uh, and Washington, in response to the revelations of a of a, a of a spy ring, but it also involved senior judge. It also recommended the involvement of a senior judge to assist the police with the investigation of this spy ring. The government went to the very top, and Justices Kellogg and Tashiro of the Supreme Court of Canada were appointed to head the secret royal commission to lead investigations, to collect evidence, and recommend prosecutions under the Official Secrets Act. 22 were charged, 21 were tried in Canada, including our first communist MP, Fred Rose, labor activists, public servants, and scientists. The British scientist, Alan Nunn-May, who was working at the National Research Council, was convicted at the Old Bailey in London, shortly after the uh, treason trial of Lord Ha-Ha, uh, for those broadcasts for the Nazis during the Second World War. Right on the heels of that case, the Alan Nunn-May uh, Official Secrets Act trial took place in London. So what does the involvement of two judges of Canada's highest court say about judicial independence and separation of powers? When those cases got to trial, do you think the trial judges would not be inclined to defer to their seniors? These examples of judicial deference during crises remind us of the importance of judicial independence. And in this sense, our series is not only a contribution, I think, to historical scholarship, but to legal and constitutional scholarship as well. The cases we examine illustrate the relationship of executive powers to legislative and judicial authority when tested by real or perceived security threats about the tensions between legal uh, and political rights on one hand and public order and state security concerns on the other, writ large between tensions between the rule of law and executive authority. The chapter by uh, Sanger, Ross, and, and Adams on the Japanese Canadians uh, uh, refers, to, uh, refers to the uh, anti-canon, the, the struggle for rights before uh, we had them constitutionally entrenched in the Canadian Charter of Rights. Canadian constitutional law uh, before the Charter very much preoccupied with questions of jurisdiction and constitutional conventions. That's what judicial review was essentially about. As we know very well, the old Bill of Rights was pretty toothless, but there were these right struggles, very, very important right struggles um, uh, that predate this, the Charter and were very much part of the struggles to ensure that the formal claims of the rule of law were respected. So it's not only a question of judicial independence that we're concerned about how it's important for the courts to operate separately from executive authority and legislative authority. It's also about our due process, about sort of the highlighting the importance of of, of uh, the burden of proof uh, and the importance of public uh, uh, tribunals, public proceedings. Uh, it's also about, uh, about the importance of, of, of good legislation in this area, which, uh, which is tight and prevents overreach. 
So I think these 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 sorts of larger issues, which uh, are, are raised by by this, and uh, I think the question of of the tendency of judges to defer in security cases to executive authority, uh, is a worry, and uh, we need to be vigilant about these matters. On the book jacket, Greg Keeley, professor emeritus at the University of New Brunswick, and an expert on the history of state security and intelligence in Canada writes that this final volume in the series is timely, given Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's recent invocation of the Emergencies Act, which raises fundamental human rights issues similar to those raised when his father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, invoked the War Measures Act in 1970 in response to the October crisis. I think the parallels are striking, and I'm interested in your perspective. Well, Greg, as you say, is referring to Pierre Trudeau's first peacetime invocation of the 1914 War Measures Act. It was, of course, used during the First and Second World Wars as well. But in this case, on the grounds of apprehended insurrection in response to uh, the October crisis 1970. And of course, his son Justin invoked the 1988 Emergencies Act for the first time on similar grounds this past February. I imagine many of your, uh, your listeners have been following the mandated independent inquiry headed by Justice Rulo with interest on the uses of the, on the, uses of the Emergencies Act uh, this past February in response to the truckers' convoy and public health uh, protests and the failure of regular law enforcement to deal with the occupation of central Ottawa and disruption of the border with the U.S., the inquiry hearings, as we as we're we're having this conversation now, have just finished, and Justice Rouleau is expected to report to Parliament in February. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the government announced its intention to replace the War Measures Act shortly after the October crisis, but the plan went on the back burner because, of course, uh, we had the uh, the so-called dirty tricks of the uh, RCMP through the 1970s, uh, the October crisis, the uh, security branch of the RCMP felt it had a carte blanche to to even engage in illegal and criminal acts against uh, security threats. During this time, a number of controversies uh, came out. Uh, People's health records were stolen. Uh, uh, subscription lists were, were, were lifted, there were barn burnings, uh, agent provocateurs were placed within the labor movement, and so on and so forth. And uh, this culminated in the McDonald Commission, which is ex- examined in, in our volume by Ian Kyer. And the recommendations of the McDonald Commission uh, led to the, the dismantling of the security branch of the RCMP and the creation of CSIS of course. And then, of course, the government was also preoccupied, in addition to this, this, this area of, of national security and, and, uh, and uh, security branch policing and intelligence gathering, the, uh, the government was preoccupied with the big constitutional amendments leading to the Constitution Act 1982. And that was the preoccupation of the government through the 70s and early 80s. So the War Measures Act was belatedly revised by the Mulroney government, as it, it turned out. It was uh, renamed in 1988 as the Emergencies Act. And this was accompanied by uh, redress to Japanese Canadians for their treatment during the Second World War. Now, when the, the uh, Emergencies Act took shape in 1988, I wrote an op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail 
noting that while it was billed as a replacement of the 1914 War Measures Act, in effect, it was really a major revision of the War Measures Act and a renaming of the War Measures Act. Um, the Emergencies Act is still too wide-reaching in my view, but the more robust legislative and judicial checks introduced are, uh, were improvements, and I believe this is demonstrated by the current review that, uh, which I hope will lead up to, lead to, uh, to recommendations to Parliament to further tighten up uh, the Emergencies Act. The mandated uh, independent inquiry is part of the enhanced reporting uh, to Parliament now. And I should add that the Emergency Act, uh, measures under the Emergencies Act are subject to the Charter of Rights, whereas as we see in, our, in, in, in Volume 5, the War Measures Act was explicitly exempt from the rather toothless Bill of Rights uh, back in the early 1970s. So, um, you know, I think that uh, certainly this sort of demonstrates um, um, uh, the relevance, um, the current relevance of the work that we've done. Um, there are also dangers, as I've mentioned, uh, in seeing simple lessons of history. But what's at stake, of course, is very significant in terms of our civil liberties and legal rights. So I do think our laws in this area can be improved, informed by experiences of the past, and I do provide some suggestions for law reforms in this area in my epilogue chapter at the end of volume five. As we look forward, the most important thing here is informed engagement, of course, and my hope is that the Canadian State Trials Project and this volume contributes to that. Yeah, well, the timing of this volume is extraordinary given recent events surrounding the convoy protest in Ottawa and in Alberta as well and the use of the 1988 Emergencies Act for the first time. In closing, I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts about the value and potential hazards of learning lessons from history to better understand contemporary political issues. Parallels are never exact, and there are dangers in seeing simple lessons of, of history. But, uh, you know, these matters uh, involving our civil liberties and legal rights are very, very important matters. Uh, certainly the historical track record uh, uh, is, is a cause for concern. And I do think our laws, as I've mentioned in this area, can be improved. It's not just simply tweaking and refining and, and, and uh, uh, the Emergencies Act. But of course, why do we have sedition as an offense in the Canadian Criminal Code? Um, New Zealand abolished the offense of sedition, uh, and in fact, it, it, it adopted, a, a, it was relied on the uh, English draft code uh, as much as Canada did in, 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 in uh, 1893. Our code was passed the previous year, but in Canada, we didn't even adopt Stephen's uh, legislative restatement of the common law uh, offense of, of, sedi of sedition. And, uh, you know, it's, it's ambiguous in the criminal code. And it really, there's no reason why we have that offense there. The treason offenses in the Canadian criminal code um, were, were consolidated uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, 18, 1892 and, and, and stated in a sort of modern legislative form because the origins of some of the, most of the treason offenses were the medieval statute of treasons. Um, and there were some additions and 
further modernization following uh, in the early 1950s uh, and in the revisions of the Canadian Criminal Code in, in 1954. But treason is a very odd offense, and the Law Reform Commission uh, examined, examined uh, this area and recommended, I think, some really good uh, uh, changes, uh, primary and secondary offenses against the state, which make much more sense. I also know that uh, the current version of the Official Secrets Act is now called the Security of Information Act. This was, like the Emergencies Act, largely a revision of the older le- and renaming of the older legislation. In fact, the Security of Information Act, uh, which, uh, which uh, the renaming happened in the Anti-Terrorism Act amendments in 2000 uh, and uh, after 9-11 in 2001, that uh, that it is in fact less of a revision of the old Official Secrets Act than uh, <laughs> the Emergencies Act is a revision of the War Measures Act. So, you know, and there are overlapping espionage provisions in the Canadian Criminal Code. The public order uh, provisions in the Canadian Criminal Code uh, need work as well. So there are a whole slew of law reforms I think that are needed uh, here. Again, I think uh, as we as we consider you know, steps forward. I think this this process of the mandated review for the Emergencies Act is a really, really good good step, but we need to 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 widen this. And again, no simple lessons of history, but informed engagement. And uh, I again, I hope that these Canadian State Trials series contributes to this. I really enjoyed reading this volume. It really helped me understand current issues such as the protests in Ottawa and put them into better context and give me another way to think about the invocation of the Emergencies Act and and other issues. Thank you so much for talking to us about your book today. It's been a real pleasure, Nicole. My guest today has been Barry Wright. He's the co-editor with Susan Binney and Eric Tucker of Canadian State Trials, Volume 5, World War, Cold War, and Challenges to Sovereignty, 1939 to 1990, published for the Osgoode Society for Canadian Legal History by the University of Toronto Press, 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter. We always appreciate likes and shares on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring life to original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on December 6, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team. 